It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions. Supply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to The Waves for Thursday, October 24th, the Bless This Mess edition. I'm Christina Cotarucci, a staff writer at Slate and host of the Slate podcast Outward. I'm Marcia Chatlin, a professor of history at Georgetown University. And I'm June Thomas, senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Uh, unfortunately, Nicole will be unable to join us this week. We miss her, but uh, we have a couple great topics. Before we get into them, though, I have some excellent news. We have a new production assistant on board. Her name's Rachel Allen. She comes to us from the Atlantic, and we are so happy to have her here. She'll also be production assistanting for <laughs> two other Slate podcasts, The Culture Gab Fest and How To with Charles Duhigg. So get ready for a market improvement on all of these shows. Uh, welcome, <laughs> Rachel. Okay, this week, we are going to start things off with a chat about love and politics, specifically what's going on with Democratic women married to Trump-loving men. They exist. Perhaps some of them listen to this show. Uh, then we're going to talk about the idea that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare, quote-unquote, a phrasing that presidential candidate Tulsi Gabbard and former Planned Parenthood president Lena Wen endorsed last week. And our last topic is a little bit squishier. We're going to talk about the loneliness and homeboundness of the photos that young people and especially influencers are posting on Instagram. June, what is our Slate Plus segment this week? On our Slate Plus segment this week, we'll be asking, was this sexist? And I went on the floor and got you votes. I got votes for that bill. I convinced people to vote for it. So let's get those things straight, too. If you're not a Slate Plus member yet and you want to know if what Joe Biden did was sexist, you can and should start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash thewavesplus. All right, on to our first topic. Uh, so the SiriusXM host, Mike Signorelli, wrote a piece in Medium recently about a series of conversations he's had on his show with liberal women whose relationships have been torn asunder or at least complicated by Trump, uh, especially when their male partners love him. Marsha, what is the deal here? This is fascinating stuff. So in Medium, um, Mike Signorelli wrote about how his show and a Facebook group inspired by it has become a safe place for women who are married to Trump supporters to talk about how this difference in political opinion animate some other dynamics in their relationship. And this is actually an emerging genre of opposites attract and the impact of 2016 on romantic relationships. And what I find most fascinating about all of this is that the idea that political compatibility isn't necessary for romance is shocking to me as someone whose entire marriage is predicated on cable news watching. Um, <laughs> but more than anything else, I think that Part of the tensions that these women express in how 2016 shifted 
their relationships was either for the first time they were realizing that politics mattered inside the home. And so for the women who said, some said that they didn't know their partner's political orientation, which I find a little hard to believe. But even for the people who felt like they could be in a relationship with someone who was maybe ideologically different, the way that then played out in their relationship is that some of these women wanted to become more politically active and vocal. They felt a deep sense of urgency after the election, or maybe even a little bit earlier before, with the emergence of movements like Black Lives Matter, that they wanted to start to articulate their views and their energies outside of the home, and it started to have an impact on their relationship. And so I think that this genre of writing has the possibility of being a cautionary tale to people about why you might want to sort out politics before you get serious with someone. But I think it also talks about the ways that depending on your identity, what part of the country you're living in, your circumstances, you can really be insulated Mm -hmm. from some of the political realities that other communities are deeply vulnerable from. Yeah, I too was, I'm just totally um, befuddled by the idea that you might not know somebody's politics before you get married. Although I do think for some of these people, um, you know, their partners changed when Trump came around. And I don't think that's, you know, unique to people married to Democratic women. I think that that's a large part of why nobody predicted or very few people predicted that Trump would win because he really did animate something in people that might not have been inflamed before. You know, he was uh, really made it okay for people to come out and say, like, you know what, I I am racist, and like that should be okay, or you know, um, I you know what, things are too PC, and and our politicians should be able to be as coarse and as vulgar as we are. Um, but when people talk about the importance of uh, you know making friends and respecting people across party lines, kind of like, do you think politics is like just a hobby or like a difference of taste in movies? Because to me, it's an extension of the things that are most important to me. Some people might call that values, you know. And my parents always taught me from when I was a kid, you know, they actually taught um, the sort of marriage course that um, Catholics need to take or or often take before they get the blessing of a priest to get married. It's called pre-cana. And they would always say, like, the thing that we teach people is, like, that's the most important thing when you're going to commit your life to somebody is to make sure that you have the same values. I wonder in cases where people do seem to have changed um, with the advent of Trump, you know, on on either side, whether it's the people who really want to get involved in progressive activism or the people who say, like, oh, I'm a huge Trump supporter now and and I can't deal with this, like, politically correct left, whether that was an extension of values they already had or whether it really was, like, a, a, a new awakening instigated by Trump. Yeah, I suspect a lot of the time it's the latter. I think there's kind of a forcing mechanism of, you know, people realizing, and and this is a phrase that I almost hate myself, but people realizing their privilege because they know that this person who they're very close with, who they live with, who they supposedly love, has cares so little for them or for people like them or for other people, so lacks empathy that they're willing to effectively you know, vote an insult comedian into office, that they're so confident of their (laughs) own safety that they're willing to blow up other people's lives 
just for laughs almost, you know, just to own the libs. There's, you know, that I think it's yet another of the so-called norms that have been blown away by Trump that I think you're absolutely right, both of you, that politics are part of the shared values that seem so essential to be in a happy relationship. But I can see that, you know, there can be some differences there. You know, Mm -hmm. I could see like a, you know, nothing too extreme, but I can see, you know, politically divergent partnerships being real and and fine. But then along comes Trump. And I don't think you can just kind of get along with, you know, kids in cages at the border or Muslim bans. Like there's just, he takes things as he does in so in so many ways, takes things to such extreme that we, you know, that things that have been possible are no longer possible and that relationships that could just kind of avoid certain topics, they can't avoid them anymore. That It, it makes perfect sense to me. And I'm also not exactly surprised. I mean, we keep being surprised by things like we keep being surprised. Wow, you know, whatever percentage of it of white women voted for Trump. I'm so horrified by it. I've, I've blocked it from my mind. But, you know, I remember after the election, a lot of conversations of, wow, can you believe how many white women voted for Trump? Well, yes, I can. And therefore, mm-hmm. I'm not as surprised as, as I think I, I'm supposed to be. And I think there's already there's also some acceptance of difference on gender issues in a lot of mm, like mm-hmm. heterosexual courtship and marriages where it's like, yeah, obviously, you know, the the typical man that I might date, especially in certain communities where there is a lot stricter, you know, um, roles for men and women, like in a lot of conservative Christian communities or something, there, you know, a woman might not enter a partnership assuming like, well, we're going to be on the same page about Uh, gender issues. And so, but then when Trump comes along and it's not just, you know, a a patriarchal sort of like, uh, we love women as wives and mothers sort of thing. And it's like, grab them by the pussy and your husband Mm -hmm. ends up supporting that and laughing at that. It's like, it's too, he's too coarse to ignore at that point. I think a lot of these stories Remind me of my favorite cultural reference, The Bachelor. You know how The (laughs) Bachelor, in a lot of the scenes, they talk about how feeling so close to people and they don't talk about anything? It's really (laughs) fascinating, right? It's like, you know, I feel so connected. And they've talked, maybe occasionally they'll talk about a trauma, but they haven't really talked about anything. And I always wonder on the show, how do you, you know, figure it out with this person? Because politics never come up. Sometimes they euphemize race when they have um, kind of a multi-ethnic, multi-racial cast, but not really. And so part of this, I think, is also about what we consider the substance of a romantic relationship. So if it's not about talking about politics or trying to flatten these differences, then what is happening within the dynamics of the home? And for some of these stories that women wrote about how their husbands pissed off because they've joined Indivisible or now they're protesting. I do wonder if sometimes politics becomes a mechanism for a kind of passive aggressive shifting in the power dynamic of the mm-hmm. relationship that something else could have taken that place. Yeah. So mm-hmm. not to suggest that these women aren't trying to um, you know, express themselves politically, but I wonder if there are other ways that this happens. It's like, I took on a new hobby and damn it, I'm going to be gone five days a week or like, I'm no longer going to do these things. And so you start to see um, that it's not just the politics, it's about the dynamics of of relationships that many of us, not all, 
grew up with, right? Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I think the idea that the patriarch owns the ideas of the household, big and small, is something that also comes out in a lot of these stories. Because if you look at a lot of the excellent books that are coming out about the history of women's suffrage this year, hmm. um, a lot of anxiety about women voting is like, do they vote what their husbands tell them yeah. or do they vote yeah. independently? And so these stories, they're both they're both about kind of the Trump era, but I think they're also about these long-standing assumptions about who gets to organize the household. Yeah. yeah. And I know in in reading this article that we read, uh, I felt like a lot of the women were, you know, disturbed by their husband's politics and maybe the way he changed after he started absorbing, like, more Fox News or more, you know, Trump land rhetoric. But it was also more about the way he started treating them, like calling her a libtard and not respecting her views. So it wasn't just that their views differed, but it was that he turned into, you know, a, a jerk about it. And it was about the internal dynamics of their relationship, even more so than the politics outside of it. Um, yeah, I, I was really interested in the in the kind of the, the emotions that came up. It felt like in, in many of these examples that we read about, you know, there was anger, but it was different. Like the women were angry that their men didn't get it. They just didn't understand what they were going through. They didn't understand why they were upset. And the men seemed to be mad that the women were angry. Like it's there, there was even a lack of compatibility around what the bad emotion was about. Yeah. There's going to be a spin-off genre of this writing um, that is slowly emerging. And that is... Um, m- Mostly white women talking about the surprise that their sons are radicalized by racist rhetoric on the Internet. And in a few experiences I've had of giving speaking engagements, I've occasionally had um, white moms say, you know, my son's looking at this stuff online or my son said something that really surprised me because I didn't think those were the values of my family. And so it's this idea that this political moment, you know, it's like something's in the water Mm -hmm. and it's allowing people who, again, we're not proximate to these issues to have a new kind of viewpoint on things. And this idea of, you know, like my son's looking at incel stuff or, you know, my son expressed these views about kids at his school and I don't know where it came from. And I think that the lesson in all of this is that politics are to be discussed at the dinner table (laughs) and these values have to be hyper articulated in a relationship. And I just remember in the 90s how like everyone found James Carville and Mary Matlin just like so adorable. You know, know, he's on the left, she's on the right and they've make it like it's like the parent trap or something. That seems so craven to me. (laughs) Like, oh yeah, you guys just both like make your money from different places and like what do you actually believe? Do you agree on anything? And there's a 2.0 now with um, Mark Margaret Hoover, a descendant of Herbert Hoover and John Avalon, and they go on CNN sometimes. And it's like, we're so, it's so kooky. But I think it's interesting that that seems to be the the domain of the elite. Like we're highly educated political elites and we just have different kind of viewpoints. But one of the things that these stories do highlight is that this is a lot of the women are working class and a lot of them are financially dependent on their husbands. So the political strife that they feel in the household can't be resolved by leaving because they can't afford to. And that also magnifies a lot of how this stuff goes down. It also speaks to me about 
the, you know, what's out there, you know, especially if you are, you know, in a rural working class community that is majority white, let's say, um, and, and you're a progressive woman or a liberal woman, like how many eligible men who share your political views or your gender politics or your race politics or whatever are even out there? I mean, even if you just look at the numbers of how many people identify as Democrats or liberals and how many people identify as Republicans, like it's only getting more gender segregated. Trump has really uh, polarized the genders on politics and, and and they were already polarized to begin with. And so, I mean, even if you take gay people out of the equation, you know, out of the, um, you know, per- percentage of people who identify as Democrats, for instance, there's still a lot more women on one side than the other. And so I wonder whether in some communities, politics just seems like another thing, you know, bad politics seems like just something women have to accept from men in order Mm. to have any sort of romantic life whatsoever. There seems to be a weird little squeaking from the heating element. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) listeners, if you can hear that. (laughs) You know, or else there must be a lot of noise. The Conway household, Kellyanne Conway and George Conway, they are probably (laughs) the most iconic, politically aligned, but deeply divergent couple. And They are litigating their relationship in op-eds and profile pieces. And I think that it is interesting to watch the way that um, a political couple is not playing by the rules of any discretion over their feelings about Trump. And so it's interesting every time George Conway is openly trolling his spouse's boss. Yeah. And then the ways that allegedly she manipulates media to try to kind of make herself look better in the context of her family life. And so that's probably not the best model of how it goes (laughs) down. I mean, I'm a conspiracy theorist. And I think that this is just, you know, all part of the Trump administration's plan to like, make itself seem more palatable by saying like, oh, look, the spouse of one of our own like disagrees with us. So look, we have diversity of opinion in our world. But that might be a little bit too tinfoil hat. But that's, (laughs) it's my tinfoil hat, and I'll (laughs) defend it to the death. All right. That's all the time we have for this incredibly fascinating topic. Um, Listeners, we would love to hear from you if you are in one of these politically discordant relationships. Um, You can email us at thewaves@slate.com with your story, and we empathize with you. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Hortons new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. Safe, legal, and rare. 
That was the phrase that Tulsi Gabbard, the congresswoman from Hawaii, used at last week's Democratic presidential debate when the candidates were asked about abortion rights. She was the only one who sort of hedged her answer rather than making um, an affirmative case for abortion access. Here's a clip of that moment. This is often one of the most difficult decisions that a woman will ever have to make. And it's unfortunate to see how in this country it has for so long been used as a divisive political weapon. Uh, I agree with Hillary Clinton on one thing, disagree with her on many others. But when she said abortion should be safe, legal and rare, I think she's correct. So safe, legal and rare has pretty much fallen out of favor in the Democratic Party since it was taken out of the party platform in 2012. Um, Hillary Clinton used the phrase in her 2008 campaign. Bill Clinton used it before her. Um, but, you know, she didn't use it in 2016. And it really hasn't been embraced in the past couple of years because advocates say it stigmatizes people who get abortions um, by suggesting that there's something shameful or undesirable about the procedure, because otherwise, why should it be rare? Um, after Gabbard said it last week in the debate, Lena Wen, who served as Planned Parenthood's president for about 10 months before she was asked to step down in July, tweeted that she appreciated that Gabbard brought up, quote, the third rail for Democrats. Wen said that most Americans hold complex truths. They can both personally oppose abortion and support others' right to choose. They can both feel uncomfortable about abortion and not want women to die from back alley procedures. So I ask you to, what do you think of that phrase? Is it politically useful? Does it speak to most Americans, as Dr. Wen said, or has it totally worn out its welcome in progressive politics? I am torn on this. I, as a supporter of the of women's right to choose and women's right to bodily autonomy, of course, I I don't have any issues. I was not brought up Catholic. I don't have any baggage around this. I think that abortion is a very safe procedure uh, that um, should be available widely. And yet I also acknowledge that it's something that uh, is very politically contentious. And I think as you wrote in Slate, Christina, when Dr. Wen made those comments, she was reflecting her role as a physician. Her background is as a physician, not a politician. Abortion is different from everything else because unlike other medical procedures that are very safe and and should be very cheap and very easy, like there's just it's a very uncomplicated procedure. It doesn't get treated like one because of the political and uh, and I guess religious all of the all of the complications around abortion make it different this is a statement of the obvious and yet it seems that a lot of people were not acknowledging that i mean abortion is different there are such heightened feelings about it that it feels while i completely agree that positioning it as rare and and validating rare makes it seem you know, something to be avoided. At the same time, I think many, many, many millions of people in this country and around the world think that abortions should be avoided. So I, I, it's, it's a, I don't know if it's just, a, I don't think it's just optics. However, um, I do think that, uh, that we just have to be real about that it is different, that it's a different topic with different, that, that drives different kinds of feelings than any other medical procedure. 
And so, you know, that in that sense, you shouldn't just be saying, you know, there should be as many abortions as we need abortion, just like there should be as many heart stents put in as heart stents need to be put in. And I have zero disagreements with that. That makes perfect sense to me. That seems like a totally reasonable position. How could you argue with it? And yet saying it potentially, you know, drives people to to vote. I don't know if for Trump, because I don't have any faith in his abortion politics, but does drive people away from from the person saying it. Um, I got no issues with it, but I know that a lot of people do. Marsha, what do you think? Oh, this was so hard. <laughs> um, you know, I, I grew up Catholic and going to Catholic school and, and went to Catholic high school. And it seems like the context now in which young people are engaged about abortion seems far more kind of like I guess politically intense than when I was a kid. Hmm. In On the both sense, sides? Well, in the sense that, you know, like um, here in Washington, D.C., they have that March for Life. I couldn't imagine when I was a young person, my school, like organizing a trip for people to go. If people wanted to go, they went. But this idea that you kind of, you organize young people to be so oriented around abortion um, is something that I, I kind of missed that moment. Hmm. Um, and might have been the context in which I live. All of this is to say that um, as someone who understands the context in which people um, are anti-choice, I understand why it is alluring for people who want to nuance or study that choice debate to engage in the rhetoric of um, you know, safe, legal, rare. Mm-hmm. I completely get that impulse. And increasingly, as I really think about what's at stake around reproductive justice, I bristle at that language because what it does, it suggests that if you make abortion simply a medical issue, you lose sight of some of the extreme tactics that are used in order to prevent access. And I think that you have to keep your eye on that prize as well because when you know when Hillary Clinton came up with the kind of the rhetoric around it I think it allows people to do another version of it that says I would never have an abortion but someone else can yeah that distancing language then distances people from thinking, well, what if I live in a state that tries to legislate abortion to the point that there's no access? Or what happens when um, organizations use incredible intimidation and scare tactics to prevent people from being providers? What happens when medical schools don't provide that kind of training? And so I guess my critique of that language, it pulls people further away from the deeper political things that also have to be protected other than access. Mm -hmm. And I think Tulsi Gabbard using that language, um, it's it's an appeal towards a type of moderate, but it loses sight of the responsibility of how to really support access. Yeah. I I just want to point out that, you know, there is a way of interpreting this that says, you know, we should make abortions rare because if abortions were rare, that would mean that people had full access to affordable, accessible contraception. Um, but I 
I think that this language and the and the discourse around it gets at the broader question of how hard Democrats should be trying to reach the anti-abortion or generally, you know, centrist, moderate, independent voters um, and how far they should be willing to go to do that. So I have been asking myself, like, what is the population that is convincible by this? Like, who are they trying to reach and why? And is Dr. Wen right that most Americans hold complex opinions about abortion? So I did a little, a little research into polling about this. Um, according to a Pew survey from late 2017, 48% of Americans say that having an abortion is morally wrong. I've seen another poll that said it was 50%. So let's say it's 50%. About 41% of people identify as Republicans. So if you take the Republicans out of that, let's say 48%, you've got 7% of the population that's Democrat or independent and thinks abortion is morally wrong. Um, although I, I do recognize that some of those Republicans may support abortion rights, but as we've seen in the way that the parties have become even more polarized over the past decade or two than ever before, you know, there's a, a extremely small number of Democratic elected officials and, and Republican elected officials that sort of switch party lines on abortion rights. I'm going to assume that the Republicans in this polling, you know, that there's a very small percentage who do support abortion rights. Meanwhile, there's a large majority of people, about three quarters of the population, according to Gallup polling, that say their presidential candidate doesn't have to share their views on abortion, that it's either not an issue they consider at all or that it's one of many issues that matter to them and they're sort of balance. It's a balancing act. So I think it's possible that if Democrats were to revert to this language, they are, you know, effectively selling out the one in four women who will have an abortion in their lives and saying, you know, that it, that you're, you're having an abortion is uh, like a failure of our desire to have abortions be mm -hmm. rare, mm -hmm. um, just to convince this vanishingly small portion of the population who believes that abortion is morally wrong and has what I think is like an unfathomable political position of supporting a fully saying, you know, I'll support a pro-choice Democrat as long as they are willing to say that abortion yeah. is undesirable. And I don't think that that's worth it. I don't think it's a good look for a party that says it's, you know, trying to protect the interests and the needs of a minority, women who need and have abortions, against, you know, the, the Republican Party and the conservatives who are trying to make it inaccessible for all but, like, uh, the, the, the richest and most well-connected women. Um, so I don't even see the utility of yeah. using this language. Yeah. Um, but I... I also don't think we're at risk. I don't think that Democrats are going to do that because Democrats, both elected Democrats and voting Democrats, have moved left on this issue um, so much in recent years that, like, I don't ever see it making a real comeback. Marsha, you're looking very skeptically at I me know, right now. I I'm trying to – I'm that emoji where the person's, like, doing the complicated math in front of them. <laughs> um, no, I, I – this is something that I struggle with because what's politically expedient and what's morally – right are sometimes at odds. Mm. And I think a lot about the fact that, um, you know, Elizabeth Warren made a statement at a debate where she said that I lived in an America where abortion was illegal and rich women still got abortions because they could travel. And mm -hmm. I think that that was probably one of 
the best statements about what we're really talking about. I totally agree. And that Mm -hmm. is something that the political rhetoric around choice and access never really informs anyone of anything. It's a lot of platitudes about um, the Supreme Court. It's a platitudes about Roe v. Wade. But I think that what's missing in all of this is a serious public education about how abortion access works and the various contexts in which um, women seek abortions. And I think that as I got older, I appreciated the fact that people told me about their experiences of having an abortion. And that is helpful, but there is a way that that conversation hasn't risen to the point where people are saying, um, I could imagine what would it be like for a political candidate to say, I chose an abortion for these reasons. And these are the complex um, realities of the of the world we live in. And I think that we have to really understand it because so much about um, the Hyde Amendment and saying that federal funds can't go to Medicaid recipients to secure abortion is also tied into a lot of racist rhetoric about dependency, about welfare queens, about about women with too many children. So it's tied up into all of these things. But I don't think that there's any space for any real political education on the issue from the mainstream candidates. And so maybe it is the right thing to just say, you know, like safe, legal, rare, or the courts have already determined this because no one's learning anything new in order for them to have a, I think, a broader or clearer perspective on this issue. I agree completely. And yet there is this sense that this is an existential question, that access is becoming so rare in large swaths of the country that there is one or two uh, clinics that will provide abortions in an in entire huge states like this. And, you know, that this policy that Trump seemed to come up with overnight has now affected immensely. You know, access is shrinking on such a scale. And yet Democrats generally don't seem to emphasize uh, courts and, you know, the Supreme Court most of all. But it's just generally a things that the Democrats are not terribly um motivated by, uh, or we would have seen, we would not have had President Trump in 2016. I mean, and so I, I also am making that strange emoji because while, as I said earlier, I see the appeal of like, you know, playing games with language. Ultimately, if you say rare, maybe that makes it seem it's okay if access is really hard to find. So I don't know, I think we really just need to emphasize, like, this is a really key right that is really shrinkingly available and um, just really put that front and center, talk about it more, not maybe worry less about optics and and weird little phrases and just kind of just remind people that the Supreme Court very well could just overrule Roe v. Wade at some point very soon uh, and really just put a rocket under people's asses about this. I also think it's a little bit of misdirection because the abortion rate is going down and has steadily been going down, mostly because of the increased availability of reliable, long-acting, reversible contraception like IUDs, Um, you know, and in part because of some of these um, targeted regulations against abortion providers, but also, like I said, mostly because of the increased accessibility of contraception. So, like, 
reproductive justice advocates are making a difference, like doing good things. Joe Biden reversed his position on the Hyde Amendment, which is the the legislation that you were talking about, Marsha, that prevents women on Medicaid from using their insurance for abortion. Like seeing things like that, seeing the efficacy of long running reproductive justice campaigns to change a guy like Joe Biden's mind about abortion. And he is one of those people who said, well, I think abortion is morally wrong, but, you know, I also think it should be legal. Like to see his change um, on just the rhetoric that he uses, the positions he takes makes me at least optimistic about where the Democratic Party is going on this, if not the direction our country is going on this. I'm glad that we mentioned Lino Wen's departure from Planned Parenthood because that one got super complicated because on one hand, this might have been an institutional mismatch, maybe good leader, not the right organization. But I think it's interesting that she used the Tulsi Gabbard moment to like remind everyone how she kind of got screwed at Planned Parenthood. But I, but I think that this question of can you make abortion just a medical issue and divorce it from politics, I think that she, she's a smart person. She knows that that's not true. But what does it mean um, for Planned Parenthood to make the case that they are a medical provider and that they do provide a lot of these other services and then politically have to be the face of the fight for abortion. It's really exhausting for them as an organization. But this question of where do medical professionals see themselves as political actors in a society, I think, is a really important question that this conversation should help us really think about. Like, what does it mean, you know, for doctors to have a position on on op- opioid addiction and Medicare for all, all of these things. And I think that there's this weird way that um, when a, if a doctor says, well, it's just medicine, it's, it's you know, I just, I just deal with medicine, I don't deal with politics, is so disingenuous that it, that, that whole situation um, with Dr. Wen just makes me very uncomfortable, but also makes me wonder if Planned Parenthood felt that they had to put a doctor in that position also, even though that particular doctor wasn't the best fit for them. Yeah. All right. We have to wrap up now. Listeners, let us know what you think is safe, legal, and rare, a productive way to frame the abortion rights issue. Does it resonate with you? You can email us at thewaves@slate.com. Okay. Loneliness. There have been a few recent articles about the loneliness of influencers on social media and other online platforms, the loneliness they project, the loneliness they feel behind the scenes in their actual lives. Uh, June, tell us about it. There have been a number of really interesting pieces recently. There's one in The Atlantic by Caitlin Tiffany called Why the New Instagram It Girl Spends All Her Time Alone. There's another one in The New Yorker called The Rise of the Getting Real Post on Instagram. Um, And between them, uh, along with another piece by Tabby Kevinson in New York, they pointed out some things about these kind of high profile, uh, huge follow account Instagram people, influencers, as we know them these days. For example, whereas once upon a time in the early days of social media, it was considered a bad thing to have your profile photo be an obvious selfie because that suggested that you had no friends. Now, there are very rarely other people in these influencers' photos, in part because they, you know, everything has to be so perfectly poised and posed. And practically, they have to take 
hundreds of these shots to get the right one. And you can't really do that in a public place. So for the most part, they're sitting in their apartments. Maybe their apartment's full of 50 different interesting retro mirrors that they can take (laughs) photos in. And they are just effectively... Um, you know, making their 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 artificial lives have to be created in a solo setting, um, which in many ways might seem lonely. Um, their home becomes a set. Uh, their their sort of quick little selfies are actually very carefully posed, artistically pretentious uh, s- shots, and. You know, you're not just anymore taking, you know, reaching out your arm and and clicking the shutter and there's your selfie. Uh, It's all about retakes. And then similarly, um, getting real is another thing that has become very desirable uh, online, mostly again on Instagram. Um, I saw this too on YouTube, which is the platform that I spend most time on, where there was a, a period where suddenly a lot of people with a lot of followers were kind of going off their usual type of content and giving little listen, I'm just going to be really honest with you now, kind of presentations and talking about really serious things like, you know, this is really killing me. This is really bad for my mental health. It's not good for a person to have to just keep doing things and then going home and and, and editing and having no life. And it's really messing with my head. And there's a kind of an Instagram equivalent of this, of just kind of, um, you know, just talking about how it's really affecting them. Um, and th- Many of these pieces have pointed that authenticity, and which of course is uh, presented and, and shaped, is now the most desirable uh, kind of value in social media and for influencers. I don't spend much time on, on Instagram, although I have a little bit more quite recently. But uh, as Christina, I know you spend a little more time there. Is this something <laughs> that, that chimes with your experience? I mean, I don't really follow a lot of influencers. I mostly follow people I know and then a couple celesbians, like Mm -hmm. uh, you're Ashlyn Harris, you're Samira Wiley, you're Megan Rapinoe. But I am aware of this phenomenon. I have seen this, you know, in I've read in reading articles or looking at stuff that um, my wife, who follows a bunch of CrossFit influencers, has shown me. I I feel like it's... um, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. I feel like it's kind of a natural extension of the sort of fashion shoots and runway performances where, like, models are never smiling mm-hmm. and don't ever look like they're having fun. So as if there's, like, something unbearably saccharine uh, or, or like, unsophisticated about smiling and having a good time, even though fun is sort of implied when you're, <laughs> right. like, having a photo shoot. It's like, oh, don't you want people to think you're having fun so they buy the thing that you're selling? Um, but I, I was reminded, reading these pieces, of a rabbit hole I went down recently when um, somebody – uh, in our office posted a link to one of these Christian mommy blogs that's like a lot of pictures of a woman and her family. Usually she's like a full-time mother and, you know, lists of tips for shopping or crafts and a lot of pictures of her house, maybe decorated differently for the seasons, but still all in the same house. And it just felt so claustrophobic. Mm. And I think that's a major point of similarity between these sort of like hip millennial or Gen Z like makeup and cool product influencers and the like Christian mommy blog influencers is this like inward looking, um, solipsistic, you might call it confined perspective that internet influencers inhabit. But I think the um, 
the like Christian mommy blog side of things are, you know, they they still have those authenticity posts about like it's really hard to be a mom sometimes and and create your identity when when it's you're always giving of yourself to other people or like you know bless this mess kind of thing. My house is is messy too, but they still look like they're smiling and loving their life. And whereas I think the more like young hip side is more about like I have social anxiety or like mm-hmm. you know at a van and chill like there's a lot more openness about mental health issues and um, and actual loneliness um, mm-hmm. but they're both performing this sort of authenticity or imperfection um, which you know it's in at the end of the day it's all a show and an advertisement. Um, But I think it's a little bit of a self-sustaining cycle too, where like they're setting the trends as much as they're responding to trends in like homebodiness and, and openness about mental health issues and stuff like that. Um, When I read about this, I wanted to be judgy and then I got reflective of my (laughs) own social media life and this is me (laughs) and I am them. When I think about the kinds of things I post on Instagram, I have two. I have one that's a one for my students, and it's like, I'm giving a lecture here, or like, I'm making <laughs> cookies in the lobby, like, come join me. Um, it, it is, you know, the professor life that they're invited into. But my private one... Your Finstagram? My, yes, my <laughs> where I troll people. No, but, you know, my private one with my friends, you know, I'm my social media is like middle-aged academics, so it's like <laughs> tips on sensible flats and books. <laughs> like, the, the whole thing is all about how you can be more comfortable as you have to stand in front of a classroom. But I find that I, like a lot of the people in these articles about loneliness porn, um, I, I find that and I think that this is about gender socialization as well. I want people to know that even though they may perceive me as successful and doing well, I'm a disaster. Hmm. Because I feel like this is the way that um, I learned as a young, ab- ambitious girl and young woman, To this is how people like you. If they feel like you can be accomplished and a disaster, this is the perfect kind of personality trait. And although I go to a lot of therapy to deal with this, I find that Instagram allows me to share this. So uh, one of my Instagram story uh, genres is, oh, shit, I've got something to do and I've messed up along the way. So, like, here's me waking up early. Oh, no, I left my, you know, I left all of my stuff in my locked office. Here's campus police opening my (laughs) office for me. And it's like, okay, on my way to, like, do something amazing or interesting. And so I think about the ways that social media, um, while it's definitely reductive and sometimes unable to show nuance and complexity, I think a lot of us use it to fill in the blanks. And so it's the bless. Uh, God, I'm like a Christian mommy blogger. It's like, <laughs> hey, everyone, here's my office. It's a disaster. But I finished my book. You know, it's like it's like what the punchline is, is reversed. And so it isn't the accomplishment and the achievement that I want to share with my students. It's the like, I can't believe I made it through this one, you know, same boat. And I think that this is what is so appealing about these highly stylized um, expressions of of disaster and of yeah. lack. Your comment that, you know, this was how you felt you could be liked or accepted, do you feel like that is related to the idea that, like, women are conceived, women, people of color are conceived as, like, uppity or, like, braggy if 
if they're pretending to have it all together and not admitting like, yes, also life is hard, obviously. Yeah, no, this is like the perfect mix of like internalized probably sexism and being in environments where there's so few women of color that um, in order to prevent from being made a target, it's like, it's like, um, successful people are just like everyone else. They bleed too. And I think that um, between my personal essay writing where I talk about some of these challenges and then my social media where it's all about me trying to like be less of a calamity <laughs> that I'm getting my needs met probably in some unhealthy ways. <laughs> That's the punchline. <laughs> I mean, it. it I, I find that very convincing and very attractive almost because, you know, social media is about making connections with people and you make connections with people through vulnerability and from both recognizing th feelings that you have felt and from uh, just kind of learning things from people. And you compared this, Marsha, with your personal essays where the whole point is to get into the complicated nuance. And it's hard to convey nuance in a picture and a short caption. And so the way, you know, the shorthand way to do that is like, here's some vulnerability, uh, relate to me. And that doesn't seem anything wrong with that. Um, I think that when your life is also your livelihood, things get very mm. complicated. But those people aren't us, you know, that's a pretty small, I don't know if it's elite, but it's a small section of social media users. Uh, and things are a bit different for them, but that's as it should be. I considered whether or not I should be sad about this trend. Like, sh is it depressing that, you know, these people who are considered, like, some of the most successful social influencers are actually, like, forced to be antisocial because they have to have take a million different shots and pose with their products and everything so they can't ever go out? But I think I feel a lot sadder about what happens when Instagram influencing or curation affects the real world, mm. like those pop-up museums or whatever that are meant like mostly as giant photo ops instead of an actually fun or thought-provoking experience. So I think the idea of people going places and doing things just for the photo op is more disturbing to me than them staying home so they can take better pictures. But for me, it's mostly a reminder that like no one is happy. <laughs> there was like a viral video of um, Meghan Markle, one of the wealthiest and most famous global influencers, um, where she got a lot of credit for saying like, <laughs> I mean, I love Meghan Markle. It was a very simple statement. She's basically like, yes, being in the spotlight is hard. And everyone was like, oh, my God, thank you for saying that. Because she is so forced to pretend like everything is so easy and all the criticism and, you know, sexism and racism just rolls off her back. But it was sort of a reminder that like being famous and rich doesn't ever like buy you out of any of the like normal human uh, difficulties or emotions that normal people are going through. Mo money, mo problems, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> this reminds me of one of my favorite articles to share with students. Um, a few years ago, um, Dan Choi became the face of kind of breaking from don't ask, don't tell. He came out um, while a student at West Point and um, Gabriel Arana in The American Prospect did a feature of like what happens when the poster child of a political issue has to just kind of exist in the world, right? Like how do you live on speaking fees and like what happens when you're in this position? And I think that increasingly 
an article like this, I felt like, wouldn't resonate with most people. But I think we're living in a time you don't know when you're going to become weird famous. Oh, uh, yeah. Um, and you don't know when you're going to be spotlight. You don't know when the president of the United States is going to pick on you on social media. And there is a way that I think these cautionary tales about a deep dependence on that type of um, that type of attention, and then the pressure to monetize it, what happens when that dries up? And I think, you know, June's point, yes, my Instagram does not get me any money. Um, I'm not being sponsored by bookstores and, you know, Yet. flat shoes <laughs> manufacturers. <laughs> but but at the end of the day... We are sponsored by Everlane, actually. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, a, there's the consistency. But, you know, but the idea that then there's a pressure to make something out of attention yeah. is incredibly difficult. But I think that these influencers also um, present it to everyday people that that is a possibility for you. Yeah. I think that's a good place to leave it. Listeners, we'd love to know what you think of the authenticity and or loneliness of the Instagram you consume. Does it make you feel lonely? Do the authenticity posts make you love your influencers more? Please send us your thoughts at thewaves@slate.com. All right, time for our recommendations. Uh, June, what have you got? I want to recommend some social media feeds, in fact, including Ooh. an Instagram feed. Um, I, as I mentioned before, I'm not never really been a big Instagram user in part because it's the one that I find just really, I start scrolling and then I look up 30 minutes later and I don't know what's happened to oh my the God, time. Same. So, so I, I kind of have avoided it for the most part. But recently, um, because I was working on a piece for Studio 360, which will come out next Thursday, October 31st, about an opera singer, Jamie Barton, who's a mezzo-soprano. My God, your fave. Singing, yeah, she's singing Orfeo at the Met right now. Um, so she's really, really active on social media. And I was just kind of monitoring and just kind of, you know, just in case it was something for my piece, right? And I am just completely charmed by her social media presence. Instagram, especially because she does do Instagram stories, but she's also very active on Twitter. And she's like, she she is really, I think, quite authentic. She's open and charming and accepting and campaigning and kind and funny and in some ways, she talks about very gently, um, like what it's like to be an opera singer where you are practicing or and also you're constantly traveling. Uh, you're never at home. And, you know, talk, it's kind of giving little snippets of what she's working on and people saying, well, I really want to see you. You know, people who are not uh, necessarily opera lovers or all that familiar with classical music. She herself is from a uh, blue-collar background. She grew up in rural Georgia. And, you know, she is very conscious that maybe people who see her, for example, waving a big rainbow flag at the last night of the proms, um, follow her, become aware of her, and then kind of want to go maybe to their first classical concert. And she really gets into it with people of saying, like, because a lot of people ask, like, what do I need to wear? And she's like, wear whatever you feel comfortable in. Um, and I just find her just incredibly charming. So um, her Instagram and her Twitter handle, I guess we call it, is jbartonmezzo. So J-B-A-R-T-O-N-M-E-Z-Z-O, jbartonmezzo. And I, I think I I'm just very charmed. What a great recommendation. Thank you, June. I'm excited for that episode. Uh, Marsha, what do you have? I'm recommending an event that's in Washington, D.C. So our listeners what? in the metro area. <laughs> um, and actually, I'm um, recommending 
Um, call your girlfriend live. Have you ever been? Oh, I actually have. I went it's and saw so them a couple years ago. Fun. Yeah. Um, so they are in town this weekend in DC as part of the Benson Ball, which is a comedy festival. Um, but they go on tour and And it's a podcast. And it's a podcast as well. Yeah. So I guess this is a multi <laughs> a multi-level um recommendation. I think that podcasting is really hard. I think working with your friends is really hard. And I think that per our earlier conversation about politics and friendship, that what I like about Call Your Girlfriend, both live and in the podcast, is that this is a friendship that is predicated on a set of values as well as the intimacy of friendship. And I think that that's important. And I love being able to um, kind of sit in on a relationship that reminds me of the closest relationships that I have that, again, are not just about care for the other person, but care for the world. So I highly recommend, if you haven't seen Call Your Girlfriend Live, to check it out. A friend took me to their show a couple years ago at Sixth and I here in D.C., and it was really fun. There was, like, a um, game show element. Like, it's a little bit more uh, interactive than Mm -hmm. your typical live podcast taping. So, yeah, I would second that recommendation. Um, I'm recommending a memoir It's by Tegan and Sarah Quinn, the Canadian lesbian uh, rock and pop duo. Uh, Their new memoir is called High School. They've released it in tandem with their new album called Hey, I'm Just Like You. Um, The album is composed of tracks that they wrote and recorded in high school but now have re-recorded as adults. Wow. I know. March is making a sad (laughs) face. My heart is just like swelling to three times its Grinch size just thinking about it. And the memoir is so beautiful. Um, it's, you know, about coming to terms with their identities as twins, as lesbians, as high schoolers, uh, and as burgeoning musicians um, growing up in Calgary in the 90s. Um, it's uh, incredibly honest. They take turns writing um, chapters. So you really get a sense of how each of them sort of interpreted the same events in different ways. Um, their relationship is, as you can imagine, like complicated and and very intimate. Um, and oh my god, it took me back so hard to my <laughs> high school days. First of all, they're wearing like yin yang necklaces and Nirvana t shirts and all the pictures, which same. Uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, just like their engagement with like the alternative scene and not being cool, but also like misinterpreting their very close friendships with girls. Um, mm. Oh, my God. It's just so much. And and every queer person I know has had the same response. The album's also incredibly good. I can't believe they wrote these songs when they were teenagers. So, yeah, highly recommend it. The memoir is called High School. The album is Hey, I'm Just Like You. That's our show for the week. Thank you to Sarah Burningham, who produced this episode, Rachel Allen, our production assistant, and Rosemary Belson, who provided production assistance here in D.C., For Marcia Chatlin and June Thomas, I'm Christina Cotarucci. Thanks for listening. I'm Victoria Cash. Thanks for calling the Lucky Land Hotline. If you feel like you do the same thing every day, press 1. If you're ready to have some serious fun for the chance to redeem some serious prizes, press 2. We heard you loud and clear. So go to LuckyLandslots.com right now and play over 100 social casino-style games for free. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.